0: Hello, I am Professor Steve Tseng, Director of the SOAS China Institute, which is sponsoring this episode of the Chinese Whispers podcast. I always enjoy my conversations with the host, Cindy Yu, as I take a keen interest in how China is reported by the press. SOAS is hosting a three-day course in late September called China and the Media, Who Decides the Stories? Journalists from the BBC, Channel 4 and Wall Street Journal will be joined by leading academics to debate how reporters cover news from China and the impact on the public opinion. I'm delighted that Cindy Yu will also be joining us. To apply for tickets, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash I hope to see you there.
1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? It's just gone a year since the chaotic US withdrawal from Afghanistan, but Russia has not replaced the US in the region. Instead, there's a new great game on. Central Asia is now a part of China's empire, also says my guest on this episode of Chinese Whispers. He's Raffaello Pantucci, a senior associate fellow of the think tank RUSI, and author of Sinostan, China's inadvertent empire. The book looks at China's outsizing influence in Central Asia among all of the stands, and is collated from a decade of travel in the region. Now, there were two when they started, but Raffaello's co-author, Alexandros Peterson, was killed in a Taliban attack in Kabul eight years ago. Raffaello has gone on to finish the book by himself. Welcome to Chinese Raf. Now. In the 20th century, Central Asia was seen as the USSR's backyard, but China has clearly usurped Russia's influence in the region, and that's what I want to start by discussing. First, can you explain to listeners the geography of the region? Because I don't think I knew this until I saw a map in your book of where the stands lie in relation to China.
2: So... The countries that we're talking about, the five countries of Central Asia, which Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, are a little cluster of countries that essentially sit in between China and Russia. And are bracketed by Mongolia, sort of on one side, that they don't actually share a border with it, and the Caspian Sea on the other. And then to the other side, you finally got a little corner which touches on Iran and then, of course, Afghanistan underneath. But essentially, they sit in between these two countries. And for a very long time, they were always considered part of the Russian Empire in some way, shape or form. And most recently, the Soviet Union. And so these are countries that are really only 30 years young. (laughs) So they're only coming to sort of a relatively new state of development. Um, And the border that they share with China was actually only one that was really defined in 1949. And I think the other critical thing which is quite important and really ties China to this region in particular is the fact that you've got communities within these countries. You know, each country is called like Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, which, you know, by the name suggests is the home of the Kazakh people or the Uzbek people. But in reality, there are Uzbeks and Kazakhs living in lots of the other countries as well. And so you've in fact got these sort of large, more nomadic tribes that essentially have had these borders written around them, which I think is quite important to think about because it does Emphasize how kind of interlinked this region is. And in fact, how much China is in some ways as much a part of Central Asia, and in particular, how much Xinjiang in some ways is a part of Central Asia as some of the five Central Asian countries. Just to give one example, there are roughly one million ethnic Kazakhs in China. Wow. And Kazakhstan has a population of only around 20 million people. So, <laughs> you know, you're talking about quite a substantial numbers that are sort of living outside each other's borders.
1: Wow, that's amazing. That nomadic point is really interesting because I think in Chinese history lessons you kind of historically know that region for as where the nomads come from you know what in Europe we call the Huns so it's fascinating to hear about the modern iterations of that so when did modern China then not, not the kind of imperial times I was just mentioning when did modern China start to be interested in that region?
2: I'd argue there's two moments, I think I I would sort of point to. I mean, the first is clearly when, you know, modern China was defined as we know it by the People's Liberation Army. And, you know, we go back to 1949 and we sort of see the borders that were first drawn. But I think what we saw happen for the longest period of time during the kind of Soviet Union was a borderland that was essentially very remote and largely ignored (laughs) to some degree and pretty fluid in some ways between China and what was then the Soviet Union. I think when you had the Soviet Union fall apart is probably the moment that we can track the most recent kind of articulation of China's relations with these countries, because at that point, they became countries. And one of the first acts that we saw from a Chinese perspective was the creation of something called the Shanghai Five Organization, Mm -hmm. which was an organization that was initially created to help delineate borders. Because these borders had been so remote and so fluid in many ways, it wasn't clear what they are. And so suddenly, when the Soviet Union fall apart, China finds itself not only sharing a border with Russia, which it had to sort of completely define, but suddenly three entirely new countries Mm -hmm. you know Tajikistan Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and so the initial creation of this Shanghai Five entity which is something which is pushed by uh, Jiang Zemin was an entity to try to delineate borders establish sort of new military relations and parameters in this
1: space who else was in the Shanghai Five
2: so the Shanghai Five was made of China Russia Kazakhstan Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan it was very much about what the border that China used to share with the Soviet Union, it suddenly became a border, in fact, that had these four different countries.
1: Fascinating. And so now, what are its main goals there then? Trade and resources, would you say that's fair?
2: So I think the principal issue that animates Chinese thinking towards Central Asia is really one about domestic stability. Mm-hmm. you know, And in many ways, this is true of every country. Every country's foreign policy is defined by its domestic policy interests, right? And I think when you're talking about Central Asia, you're really talking about Xinjiang from China's perspective. And from China's perspective, they've seen historically how Xinjiang has had this trouble between the Uyghur minority and the Han increasing majority, which has led to violence. And they've seen links to this violence across the borders because there are large Uyghur diasporas in in these places and in in the past dissidents have hidden there. And so we've had a sort of history of of trouble. So there is that kind of security concern. But then I think in the longer term, in some ways, we can look at the Chinese security response to Xinjiang to try to stabilize the region and the very heavy security response. But the Chinese government, I think, recognizes the long-term stability to Xinjiang is really going to come from economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. So from their perspective, for this region to be stable and to not have this tension between these minority communities and the majority, they need to have an economically prosperous region. But if you're going to make Xinjiang economically prosperous, you're going to have to find a way of connecting it to the world because Xinjiang is in many ways is landlocked and disconnected from the seas and the traditional sea routes which Mm -hmm. generate so much of the world's trade than, frankly, any of the Central Asian countries it's next to. So in some ways, to sort of open up Xinjiang and make Xinjiang more connected up to the world and ultimately more prosperous, you really have to sort of open up routes across land. And this is where I think the key interest one of the key underlying interests lies with China's interest in Central Asia. It's really about trying to improve the kind of prosperity in this border region around Xinjiang to help improve Xinjiang's prosperity and also Xinjiang's stability. Looking beyond that, This is an area that is rich in natural resources, Mm -hmm. oil and gas, lots of minerals. And these are all things the Chinese economic machine consumes and is looking for. And so, of course, having these ripe opportunities right on your border, of course, interesting to Chinese companies.
1: So let's talk about Xinjiang first then. Fascinating what you're saying about the long-term strategy of making the region prosperous, because I think that's often not discussed Mm -hmm. because we are focusing quite a lot on the dire persecution of the Uyghur people happening in the region. But then the longer term, is the thinking from Beijing, make them richer, make them more stable, make them more prosperous, and therefore they're not going to be rebelling against central authority in the way that they have been so far?
2: Yes, I think that's the ultimate vision. I mean, I think, you know, the Chinese government recognises that, you know, a very strong security crackdown it's not necessarily going to deal with these problems in perpetuity. You know what I mean? And so they recognize that to try to turn that corner eventually is going to require something else to have changed in the environment. And they think the key element is economic prosperity. And I think they would look around the country and say, look at the rest of the country. We've sure. had instability in other places, and yeah. now we've got wild prosperity. And- well, they-
1: I mean, you see the same kind of logic going for Hong Kong, right? I mean, during the 2019 protests, so many Chinese in the mainland were saying the problem is the house prices there. You know, the young are dissatisfied because of the house prices and they're channeling it into political disillusionment. Seems to me it's quite a Marxist interpretation that economics underlies everything and also misses the point of the importance of identity, culture, religion. But before we get on to all of that, I just want to first touch on that under-discussed part of the Xinjiang policy, what is China doing to try to make Xinjiang richer? So you've talked about trade cross-border into Central Asia, but is there more stuff happening internally in China as well?
2: Yes, there is. There's a great deal. And you can go back, and I think the interesting recent turning point in kind of China's policies towards Xinjiang, you can probably trace back to July 2009, when you had large-scale rioting in Urumqi, where reporting was around 200 people were killed in in clashes between Uyghur and and Han. It's possible more. We really don't Mm -hmm. know the sort of full details. But that kind of marked an interesting watershed moment, I think, in recent Chinese policy towards Xinjiang. Because after that, you saw a real effort by the central government to rethink the approach that had been taken until then. Because, you know, that event took place when... uh, then Premier Hu Jintao was in Italy at a G7, or so G8, what was it At the time, G8 summit in L'Aquila, Italy. You know, it as we being fated on the international stage, you know, this is China's rising moment, so on and so forth. And he had to leave all of that to go scuttling back home to try to resolve this domestic, clash right and Mm -hmm. that was pretty embarrassing from Beijing specifically after that moment you see a real turnaround in the policy and a long-standing leader who'd been in charge there Wang Luquan, who'd ruled the province for 15 years or so was rather unceremoniously shunted on (laughs) and you see a real change and one of the big changes that you saw was a real attempt to push more domestic economy towards Xinjiang. Mm. So you had a lot of twinning. So some of the richer coastal cities were given mm. responsibility mm. for prefectures in Xinjiang. One example I remember was I think Shanghai was given responsibility for parts of Kashgar. Mm-hmm. And they were said, you know, cadres from the region were told you have to go work in Xinjiang, you know, to help the local cadres become more efficient and develop and try to copy Shanghai's success. I mean, lots of other cities, Tianjin, Beijing, others all had responsibility for different parts. So there was that kind of twinning that happened. Provinces were told to give some portion of their GDP to Xinjiang to, again, help improve the economy as sort of Mm -hmm. aid of a sort. And you saw companies from these various regions being encouraged to go out there. And I remember meeting in my sort of travels around Central Asia, and actually in Xinjiang as well, people from Guangzhou, whose company had been told... Go set up a factory in Xinjiang. Yeah. So they'd go and set up a factory in Xinjiang to try to help, you know, the region. So there was a lot of kind of internal economics that happened yeah. to try to do all of this, as well as the external facing part, which right? How, how
1: would you evaluate the success of that strategy? Because it does seem that often the economic growth that the region has seen comes at a cost to local culture mm. or through literally exploiting the Uyghur people's forced labour or at the very least the Uyghur people don't get a share of the growth pie because, as you mentioned, it's the Han people from other parts of China coming in. Is that fair? Is that why they're not being co-opted into this very nice-sounding mission?
2: I think there's a, a certain element of that. It's not clear how much the people who should who need to benefit from it are really benefiting from it. It's very difficult to sort of objectively ascertain that, but certainly anecdotally it doesn't seem like it's always sort of happened. But the fundamental question is what what metric do you look at? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think from a Chinese government perspective, they would say you've got stability in Xinjiang now. And as we yeah. just saw with okay. Xi Jinping visiting the region, he would say, well, it's now stable. Yeah. We saw him not talking about terrorism during his last visit. And we saw him talking about look at how, you know, economy. So I think from their perspective, they would look at this and say, yes, we have delivered that. Now has it really dealt with the problem in the longer term and has it dealt with all the issues and you touched briefly on the question of this quite Marxist notion of it all being about the resources you know and if everyone just has the resources they'll be happy and not you know clearly that's not what motivates people <laughs> you know people get motivated by their ideas and sense of self and and so on and so forth and I don't think they, they've kind of addressed that in in some way so I think that it's questionable about whether this approach will actually deliver the goal that they want but the Chinese government thinks this is the approach to take and I think then to just Sort of on the Uyghur issue in particular, I think the other point that we always have to remember with this is in overall national Chinese terms, this is a marginal issue. You know, it's always worth remembering that the Uyghur people, which are I think about 10 million is Mm -hmm. the sort of estimate that people run around with. That's out of a population of 1.4 billion mm-hmm. in China. So you're talking about a small community within the country that lives on the farthest fringes of it. Most Chinese haven't sort of ever really encountered this at all. So all they've really heard is what they've maybe seen in the state media, which is yeah. frankly a quite negative story. So, I mean, in overall national policy terms, this isn't necessarily the priority that some of us externally would, would look at it. And so I think that allows a level of kind of policy approach that Beijing can take, which to us outside, we say well, that's clearly not going to work, but actually it's probably delivering what they want which is yeah. not generating violence and incidents within the country of instability, which is what they're kind of trying to avoid. Because I would agree, I, I don't think that people are always motivated, frankly, by money <laughs> no. and, and lives. They're clearly not. There's lots of other motivations which drive yeah. people, and especially if you're living in an ethnically homogenous country like China, yeah. and you have an identity that is, is very different.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about identity, because just... One last question on the Xinjiang issue, which is that do Central Asian governments and people see what's happening in Xinjiang and are they concerned about it? Because there is much more religious and ethnic solidarity, one would think. But actually, I don't know, you don't really hear the Kazakhstan government really protesting against what's happening in Xinjiang. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: So, I mean, in my experience of traveling around the region, I must say I found a limited pool of solidarity towards the the Uyghur people suffering in Central Asia. I don't want to say everyone was heartless. Everyone recognised you know, that there was something happening there, but there was a sense: well, these people are Chinese, right? They live right. In China. So they don't
1: think that this idea of East Turkestan, which some Uyghurs talk about, do they, they do.
2: But it's maybe a simplistic view that we have right. of this region. We say, well, they're all Turkic peoples mm-hmm. except for the Tajiks. Mm-hmm. So therefore, well, they must all get along, sure. <laughs> and they must all, you know, be friendly with Turkey and everything else. Well, that's not always true. You yeah. know, I remember one of my. Funny encounter in one of the the Central Asian countries, I I went to the Turkish embassy who were very kind and sort of took time out to talk to me and I said, you know, well, how much does this Turkic solidarity and thing work? And they said, well, you know, it's interesting. We try to support it. And there are lots of Mm -hmm. Turkish schools and so on that advance around the region. But they said that one of the biggest problems they encountered was they would find Turkish businessmen who would come out to the region and just say, oh, I can talk language <laughs> to these people. And so they would just try to go do a business deal. Yeah. And they discover, actually, no, the languages aren't, they are close, mm. but they're not identical. <laughs> mm. You know, when you're going to a business negotiation, you've got to be precise, and you've got to be right. Yeah. And so the embassy would find itself suddenly getting called by this Turkish business saying, could you send me a translator? Because I'm trying to conclude a how deal. How did
1: you find, because you did so much fieldwork for this mm. book over a course of over a decade, mm. how did you guys find traveling around giving? and that language problem because I think you both are fluent Mandarin speakers. Is that so, right?
2: So I speak Mandarin. Yeah. Uh, it's going a bit rustier over time. but <laughs> I, I function in Mandarin and at various moments I travelled with other friends and colleagues who spoke a bit of Russian.
1: Okay. And then we found
2: local fixers who were kind of help us out whenever we yeah. needed to.
1: Okay. And there was a Chinese and Russian. How good was that in getting around? Well,
2: you know, we were looking for Chinese people and Chinese speakers sure. so it was, it was yeah. useful to that regard but it, it's certainly true that it wasn't always you know it was useful to have others helping around with languages as well what I would say in the region is interesting is as time has gone on I have found more Mandarin speakers mm, in the region sure. uh, and in Tajikistan is the most live example of that when I first went I struggled. We really struggled to find anyone who really cared. There was a few Chinese businessmen there, but it was very limited. Now there's lots of Tajiks, young Tajiks who've learned Mm -hmm, Mandarin and mm -hmm. sort of want to know more. And the interesting thing on the Russian side is actually what we discovered is the more you get outside the big cities, actually Russian is starting to fade away in some ways and the local languages are taking over. And this is actually something that the governments are not always that happy about. On the one hand, they're please their national language is sort of being advanced but they recognize if you want to get ahead in the world speaking Mm -hmm. Russian if you're from this part of the world it's not unhelpful Mm -hmm. (laughs) it does open up a world of opportunities to you that you know maybe just speaking Uzbek does not so it's an interesting kind of balance that you see there
1: and you get some of that desire to be have a global language under your belt through people who want to learn Mandarin as well in in these places talk a little bit about the Confucius Institutes and their role in that then so
2: I was very fortunate. I mean, you know, one of the things I have seen doing this work over and travel around the region was, you know, I found Chinese traders and teachers I would find always very welcoming, and always very friendly. they were always quite curious to have a sort of white person coming up to them in the middle of Central Asia to talk <laughs> Chinese to them, you know. Like, oh, what's this Are they
1: surprised? They were. They were tended
2: to be surprised and sort of intrigued and curious, you know, and then they would sort of take some time. So I was go and get something to eat, which was very nice. But the Confucius Institutes were always very welcoming, frankly. They were always willing to kind of engage and talk to us. And it was an interesting mix of people that we met there. It was sort of, there was an element of some of them were clearly people who'd been sent out there, so they were there for you know two years or whatever it was, and there were
1: Chinese people Chinese who were, teachers
2: yeah. who Hanban had mm-hmm. sent out to mm-hmm. go and you know educate the masses kind of thing. And, you know, they were kind of there punching a clock and they would sort of complain about the locals and so on and so forth. And then you had some who really embraced it, you know. There was one yeah. particular teacher who I saw over a number of years who kind of stayed on and clearly, clearly was very happy there. And he had, the local students really liked him as well. And he was, yeah. you know, very much a teacher. He saw himself in that light and... It was interesting because we were always trying to understand what were the institutes doing, mm. you know, and was it that there's a lot of concern sometimes about narratives that they're pushing and yeah. and the culture that they're trying to sort of warp. And they were always very clear that, you know, we're here to teach these people Mandarin.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> and they would avoid, they would say, oh, no, we don't do any cultural things. And actually they did tend to do cultural things as well. And it seemed like quite a transactional, frankly, relationship. And it was all about trying to get these students
1: to learn, to learn Mandarin. And then they, they, in turn, you mentioned that at one point in your book, they, in turn, were learning Mandarin, often not because of some kind of romantic ideal about the Chinese language, but because of the real benefits it could give them in, in their careers. Yeah.
2: I mean, one of the big things you noticed was, you know, when you'd ask the kids, mm-hmm. <laughs> they would say, oh, baba uh, you know, it was usually, <laughs> their parents had frankly told them, I need you to learn Mandarin because, you know, I need you to be able to go talk to the guy in Guangzhou who we want to do business with, and I want you, you know. So there was, it was a very kind of transactional relationship we found very yeah. few who were like, I study this because I want to read you know, Tzu in the original yeah. language or something. There was one very charming young woman we met in, um, in Uzbekistan who was... Very fluent Mandarin speaker, and you know, was correcting me all the time. And you know, my Mandarin works, but it's I recognize it's not great. But she was like, Oh, your Mandarin's awful, you know. She kept correcting me. Her goal was to be a presenter on CCTV, Mm. (laughs) she thought this would be a really cool and wonderful thing to do. Have you caught up
1: with her? Has she made it?
2: I haven't seen her on TV yet, to be honest with you. But I must say, I don't watch uh, CCTV or CGTN a huge amount, so it's possible she's very (laughs) someone. But but she was very ambitious and very keen to do it, and you know, but but she was a rarity, I must say. uh,
1: So, Confucius Institutes are quite a live topic at the moment in the UK, in particular, because Rishi Sunak, as we record, he is still in the race for Tory leader, has said that he'll ban them. This trust has pretty much signalled similar things. Legislators in the British government have said that they want to basically put more restrictions on them, such that alternatives perhaps from Taiwan will come. Concerns are basically that they spy on their students, that they promote some kind of CCP narrative. Did you see signs of I don't know, I guess, political infiltration in the in the target Central Asian countries that these Confucius Institutes operated in when you were traveling around?
2: I mean, I did see things that I wondered a bit about, mm-hmm. but not within the Confucius Institutes, to be honest with you. Within the Confucius Institutes themselves, I found what looked like what they were trying to be which was didactic institutions you know and I must say the most interesting thing to me was to look at the different countries because we talk about central Asia we've been talking about it as though it's one homogenous region it's yeah. not of course these are five very different countries in many ways but if you were to put them in brackets let's say you could look at Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan mm-hmm. and say these are very aid-dependent countries and you could look at Kazakhstan and say it's a very wealthy country you know with lots of mineral wealth a great deal of it which is housed here in London Uzbekistan which is a big trading nation and has a large population and then Turkmenistan which is a very difficult country in many ways, but one where it's quite difficult to get a grip on exactly where sort of wealth or poverty sits. It's, it's a rich country, but there's lots of dissonances within. But so within that bracket, the Confucius Institutes fit mm. in the sense that in the aid dependent ones, these are countries that they want help from everybody. Mm. So if someone's going to come and offer them a free course to learn a language which will help them advance in some way, Great. They need it. You know what I mean? There just isn't other stuff there. So there's like a benefit. And so you could see that there it's really a question of do they want to go to the Confucius Institute or do they want to go to whatever American Institute is based or British Council if it's there. And frankly, they'd like all of them to be around (laughs) because they can see an opportunity there for all of them. So the institutions end up feeding that need. And the need is a very kind of pragmatic one. I think when you look at a place like Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, which has got some very good universities with long histories of teaching languages mm-hmm. and other things, it's a very different kind of relationship. And so the Confucius Institutes in some ways has become poor siblings to the local universities, oh, really? where okay. actually the local yeah. universities is where the real Mandarin teaching is happening. And actually you see some Hanban teachers being sent there, but it's a very pragmatic kind of relationship. And I think some of the political influence and interference questions that we worry about here and control on the discourses in the, in the university campus It's a very different conversation (laughs) in the Central Asian countries about what discourses are permitted in those sorts of environments anyway. Yeah. So it's a very different class that you're talking about. Are they
1: almost all one-party systems anyway, politically speaking?
2: No, I mean, Kyrgyzstan has elections. Elections, unfortunately, usually result in violence. But uh, (laughs) in a lot of the other countries, you have governments that have a pretty, you know, smooth transition from one to another. Okay. It's not a a democratic polity in the way that we might look at it here, where, you know, some open election, which, you know, has multiple candidates. I just
1: wondered if there was like a strong man affinity between China and its dealings with some of these countries. Yes,
2: I think there is certainly some of that. There is certainly some of that. There is certainly some of the Which might also be relevant
1: for what we were talking about just now with the Uyghur treatment.
2: I think there is an element of that. I think there it's more a question of... Where they do worry about Xinjiang. They do worry about it more in terms of when their co ethnics getting involved. Of course. So the Kazakh government has lobbied the Chinese government for a better treatment of Kazakhs who were caught up in the systems in China. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be some evidence that it might have worked, actually. I okay. think the Kyrgyz have tried to do the same thing to Tajiks as well. And they've had some protests in their countries that are expressing solidarity for that. But what you don't see is a wholesale sense of condemnation of China and what it's doing in the same way. In part because, yes, they're, you know they're all countries that kind of have a one-party structure and kind of want to support each other and don't want to undermine each other and, you know, don't throw stones in glass houses right yeah. so you know there's an element of that that plays into it as well um, yeah. and a sense that you know well frankly the chinese don't criticize what we do within our yeah. borders and yeah, so yeah, we're yeah. not going to criticize what they're going to do in those
1: sure i want to also talk about trade raf i wonder if you can give an overview of the economic interests that china has with these five countries maybe just in terms of sectors because there's energy isn't there but there's mm. also resources and minerals so yeah. maybe just give a brief overview of what the main picture looks like
2: So, I mean, the trading picture is quite substantial and quite important for all of these countries. It's grown a lot over time. Energy is a key component of it. Of course, China has investments in hydrocarbon fields in Kazakhstan, in Turkmenistan to a great degree, in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan a bit. Um, In Kyrgyzstan, there's just not that much there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, energy is a big component of it. But I think the key thing I would say is energy in all sorts of ways. So, for example, China's a big consumer of uranium. From Kazakhstan. China's also quite involved in the uh, renewables sector in these countries, both in terms of helping them refurbish old infrastructure that they have, but also build new ones. And there are even suppliers of petrol. <laughs> There's Chinese companies doing, you know, supplying gas at, at the pumps in these mm-hmm. countries. So the energy relationship is much more complicated than just saying they're buying, you know, or their companies that they're digging up oil. And I think that's the key point that I always try to find was that it was, mm-hmm. you know, we have, we have a tendency to think about the relationship with China being quite binary or quite mm-hmm. simple in a sort of one mm-hmm. track. But actually it's just incredibly wide-ranging. So when we talk about trade, if you go to any market in Central Asia, it's full of Chinese goods. And that's Chinese goods of every sort you can imagine. And actually increasingly interesting, you can see if you go to like Taobao or, you mm-hmm. know, or, or some of these Chinese platforms, you can see that actually Central Asian companies are setting up platforms on these to try to sell their goods into the Chinese market. So and that's a lot of agriculture, frankly, products and you know mm-hmm. quite simple things like that that they produce. So It's a very kind of wide-ranging relationship that goes into all sorts of directions. And it's really a case of you've got these countries that have natural resources that goes beyond hydrocarbons, there's minerals, there's copper, there's zinc, iron, Mm -hmm. all sorts of other things that the kind of Chinese market wants, as well as products. By products, I mean everything from, you know, white goods to pens to... Well, frankly, all of us get all of our goods from China these days, right? So, you know, that's true, of course, in a country that's neighboring it. But the the other side of this is, is of course, investment. Investment mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, infrastructure construction. And there's a lot of that that's happening as well. It's, it's always interesting to observe that this is the place where the Belt and Road Initiative was first announced and was yeah. sort of christened. I and mean, I think that's very much because the Belt and Road in itself is basically... Xi Jinping putting a name on what had been happening in Central Asia for some time already Mm. and then taking that model and globalizing it. So Mm. I think this is why I think the relationship that China has with Central Asia is a very large, wide-ranging and complicated economic one that goes far beyond the simple narrative which you often hear which is these countries are countries that lots natural resources.
1: Mm-hmm. China
2: wants those natural resources. Mm-hmm. That's a component of it. Yeah, But it's actually a much more wide-ranging economic relationship.
1: Well, I thought one interesting part, one of the many interesting parts in your <laughs> book, was about this difference in the Chinese relationship with these countries compared to the Russian relationship mm. before. For example, you give this example of oil refineries mm. uh, and how Russian companies like Gazprom would split up regions within the countries whereas China was doing it in a slightly different way could you explain that and what you identified as the difference between those relationships were
2: so i think the if i put it in really simple terms <laughs> i always thought the relationship that you had between Russia and the region and China in the region was in some ways Russia doesn't really see this as an independent region it kind of sees it as an extension of itself mm. you know and so it treats it in a very paternalistic way and you could see its companies operating in a similar environment they say well you know these are just these poor Central Asians of course we're going to do business there and we'll tell them what to do and we'll kind of control this in the way that we want to control it whereas the Chinese approach is far more transactional it was we're coming to you country X you yeah. know in this case Kyrgyzstan what is the need here You know, we'll offer you a project, we'll offer you loans to do that, we'll send our companies to deliver the project, you'll agree to these terms, you'll sign an agreement, and then we'll do it. And it's just very transactional, very focused on that specific need and interest. And the wider part of it doesn't really matter. The wider part of it, well, that's someone else's problem to worry about. Whereas Russia takes a much more kind of, as I say, paternalistic view Mm -hmm. of this region. And that extends in all sorts of economic ways as well. We can see Russian companies treated as their kind of natural backyard, if you will. And even if you look at the sort of constructs that have been created in some ways, the economic constructs to link this region up to Russia and to to China specifically, Russia had... So back when the Soviet Union was falling apart, the then leader of Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev, suggested the idea of creating what he called a Eurasian Economic Union. And it was an attempt to basically try to keep the economic sinews that kept the Soviet mm-hmm. Union together going because Central Asian countries recognized that they were suddenly getting pushed out into the cold and they really didn't know how to manage their own kind of national economy this way. And they were very tied to Russia and it was very important in that way. And so he suggested this idea, but it never went anywhere mm-hmm. because Moscow had other preoccupations. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really interested in having to bail out these countries now. In, I think it was around 2005, you see the Russians start to reawaken this conversation and you see them pushing this idea forwards. And now they very much realized it. And essentially the creation of the Eurasian Economic mm. Union, which in Central Asia encompasses Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, essentially gives Moscow control over these countries' tariffs, external mm. facing tariffs. Okay. And wow. it has a very strong kind of relationship. Like the customs union. Customs union, exactly, yeah. exactly what it is. It's a customs union. But, and it's very favorable in some ways. And a lot of the people I've spoken to in these countries have said, look, when we signed up to join this Eurasian Economic Union, we thought there was going to be kind of a benefit for our companies as well. But they, <laughs> they said, I actually, it really turned out it was the Russian companies that really benefited from this. Right. You know, so it's very much a relationship stacked in that way. Now, the Chinese approach, I'm not going to say it was much more magnanimous in some ways, but it was much more transactional. So if you look at the visions that China's offered in economic terms. There's the Shanghai Corporation Organization that Mm -hmm. evolved from the Shanghai Five that we briefly talked about before, where China's long talked about creating free trade area within that. It's never actually taken off because not all the partners want it. But that was really about trying to improve trade between all this area, right? And doubtless Chinese companies have been able to benefit, but the idea would have been others would have as well. And if we look at the Belt and Road Initiative, it's really about offering projects to these places and sort of doing those transactions And that, as I say, the Russian approach does tend to be a little bit different.
1: That's really interesting. What what do these countries then think about the fact that they now have a new, I don't know, big boss in the area (laughs) that is not the USSR or Russia anymore, but it's China? How do they feel about that? I guess we can say, what is the political interest in China? And also, does public opinion differ? Is there more xenophobia in public opinion?
2: Yes, there is, in short. There is a great deal of... I mean, you know, one of the things we always found, sadly consistently, was a very basic kind of racism towards Chinese in the region. Very horrible yellow peril kind of narratives you know you would find that quite frequently at a public level and
1: it's interesting that the, the conspiracy theories that you you list you know yeah. people talking to you in hushed tones about you know mm-hmm. how these Chinese roads are built so that they can hold the weight of a Chinese tank right quite funny stuff which you can definitely see how that takes root and it's actually quite terrifying <laughs> yeah yeah no there is there is a real
2: there is a real edge there you know and it's quite dark in some ways and you do have instances of clashes between communities that happen quite a lot well not quite a lot that's an exaggeration but they do happen it's not infrequent it is a very kind of you know basic reason. but what's interesting is that sometimes this problem actually escalates to the point where it causes problems at a national level because mm-hmm. the governments of course have a very different view of china yes because for them this is a big economic opportunity i mean the central asian countries recognize that you know they're sitting next to the world's second largest economy now and you know this is clearly the big growth story of our time and that's what they want to connect with so they can see the opportunities there and they want to advance it and you find often that it gets you have public protests happen to the point where they have to sort of hide projects or walk back from deals that were being struck because... Mm. It was causing so much tensions.
1: Well, you also describe how some Chinese companies basically hide their presence in Mm -hmm. cities. It's very hard to see any there's anything Chinese about this business site at all. Is that?
2: Yeah, no. I mean, there are some cities in in Kazakhstan, particularly in the sort of oil regions, you know, where you would go there, and we know CNPC is a very big player, but you just couldn't find evidence (laughs) of them, you know. And you'd sort of ask the locals, "Where are the CNPC guys?" And they go, "We don't know what you're talking about." We tried to find a Chinese restaurant and they sent us to a Korean one instead. You know, so they were like, you know, there's no, they, they're really hidden away. And, you know, we did finally find some of the Chinese engineers and they said, oh, we live outside the city at an yeah. old Soviet sanatorium where we're all kept. And, but I mean, you know, I know also that when these companies have people going into Kazakhstan in particular, but also in some of the other countries, they're briefed about what they should do. And they're told, yeah. you know, always oh, travel in groups make sure if a local officer shows up, here's what you should do, you yeah. know. Give them-
1: well, yeah, because there's not much local mixing. I mean, it's because it's not just the locals who have an image, a preconceived image of the Chinese, right? Because the Chinese certainly have a preconceived image of the locals. I mean, we see this when, when Chinese workers go to Africa. There's a stereotype of either they're really poverty stricken so they're not yeah. educated or that they are fundamentally lazy yeah is that the same here as well very very strong yeah. sentiment
2: of that I mean you had a lot of instances where you know was like, well these people are just lazy you know they don't work as hard and, and this plays in an interesting way in the kind of state-state relationships because in a lot of cases you know one of the issues we found sometimes is you know people say Chinese companies when they come they always bring their own workers mm-hmm. and this is something that you know is negative because you're depriving the locals of jobs and what you'd sometimes find with a company would say well you know we want to deliver this project in six months and the government would say we want that project in six months because there's some local election cycle they want to hit The leader wants to show oh i brought you this you know wonderful new road or whatever and they would say well look if you want us to do that we've got to bring in chinese workers and so the government would say yeah well you know the local rules say you must hire this many locals and like fine we can do that but it's going to take nine months what tends to happen is the government would say yeah let's just make it happen okay and yeah. so they would sort of sweep it through and but yeah, those kind of narratives are kind of indolent locals who are not yeah. up to the standard of Chinese workers. And actually, it plays the other way, which is that, you know, the, the locals will look at the Chinese workers and say, these people work like dogs and they're prisoners, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're actual former convicts from China <laughs> who've been sent into the region to do these horrible jobs because they couldn't conceive why yeah. these people would work 24-7 for, you know, a long period of time and live in pretty grotty conditions and seemingly be okay with that. And truth is, there are some pretty diligent Chinese workers out yeah. who are willing to tolerate these because of the paycheck at the end which yeah, they will happily send home so but, but the interpretation of that in a local context is very interesting
1: yeah and Rafa we're quickly running out of time we haven't sure. talked about Afghanistan at yes. all <laughs> but I mean good thing is for listeners who want to know more about Afghanistan I have done a previous episode on it so I will oh, link that in go. the description but just one question which is kind of related to Afghanistan is the subtitle of your book is that it's an inadvertent empire yeah what do you mean by that?
2: So the notion in inadvertent Empire is that you've got this part of the world where China is becoming the most consequential player on the ground, but we find very little evidence of Beijing having a plan about what to do and very little evidence of any thinking about, well, what then does it mean if you become the most consequential player on the ground in the sense that these countries will look to you for problems. These are countries, unfortunately, that have problems within them. If we just look at the past year, You've had major instability in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, which was a shock to everyone, by the way, in those two countries. In Tajikistan, you've still got a, a lot of the And you've got border clashes in Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Mm-hmm. And you've had the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. So this is a region that has, is volatile, shall we say. And increasingly, you've got there as the big player a power that has very little interest in trying to resolve any of these issues, that will look at this in a very kind of transactional way.
1: Was there more political leadership from the USSR and also, one would expect, from the US in other parts of the world? Is that the kind of leadership of a great power that China hasn't quite stepped up to? Yes.
2: Yes. I think that's a very accurate way of putting it, frankly. The, old, the other powers that have sort of had this dominant role in the region have taken a very different view to what, what they're doing there. I mean, the United States' 20-year experiment in Afghanistan was, you know, a state-building one, right? <laughs> Did it work? Well, hmm. But that was the effort there, you know, to try to reconstruct this country in this way. You can still see the U.S. has strong relationships with a lot of the other neighboring countries, a lot of conflicts with some of them as well, if you think about Iran. But, you know, that's kind of the vision that they always had, whereas China just does not have this approach at all. It's much more, again, transactional, mm-hmm. very focused on what is the deal we're trying to do here and now. But the point is that those deals are huge. And they have game-changing impact within those countries. In Afghanistan, for all of the American effort and investment that you saw over 20 years there, the biggest investment projects into the country were Chinese. Now, projects, contracts were signed. (laughs) Not maybe as much happened as should have been expected, frankly. And and, in the project in Messinak, the copper mine there, you know, that was signed in 2007. Nothing's happened since. So so there's a question, but they, it was Chinese companies that were doing those big investments. And actually, the Afghan government at the time was very eager to encourage more of that. And actually, the new Taliban government is as well, mm. you know, because they all see that China is kind of the big economic player in their backyard and the one they want to connect with. So it's an interesting dynamic that you've got this region which has increasingly come under kind of Chinese thrall and where China is such a consequential player. But the approach that China's going to take and the vision that China has is just so different
0: Mm. to, frankly,
2: the approaches that you saw before. And it's not going to try to resolve any of these problems. It's just going to let them play out and see what happens and deal with whoever comes out
1: on top. Mm-hmm. And very finally then, Raf, what does all of this mean for Western policymakers? Because we've heard about an Indo Pacific tilt. Central Asia is not in the Indo Pacific, I don't think. We hear a lot about China's interests in Africa, increasingly more about it in South America, but nobody talks about Central Asia. So is that a problem? Should we be thinking about, by we, I mean, you know, people in Washington and London, should people in Washington and London be thinking about this is a area we should be countering Chinese influence as well?
2: Look, I think that this is one of the huge lacuna, frankly, in Western strategic thinking. It's one of my endless frustrations that we have this sort of constant obsession with the maritime China and what what it's doing there. And there is zero discussion of the fact that China is becoming the most consequential player on the Eurasian heartland. Now, what does that actually mean and what does it matter? It's a good question. Now, if we go back and look at history and we think about, you know, the great, Geographer Halford Mackinder, he identified this region as the geopolitical pivot of the world and he who controlled this would control the Eurasian island and controlling the Eurasian island means you control the world, right? That's in very sort of grandiloquent terms. But I think more seriously, you know, if we think about recent times, some pretty major problems have emanated from this region and instability in this region has a direct contiguous link to... Europe for a start. So there is a there is a kind of direct connection there that I just see no real serious strategic thinking about. It's this fixation with the maritime Mm -hmm. relationships and what we see happening there, which I think misses the fact that there is this giant change happening in the Eurasian heartland where there's no sort of engagement. Now, having said that there's no engagement, I think that there is some thinking about happening in Washington, but it's definitely not the priority. There are definitely many other priorities and I can kind of understand why. But I, I think in European thinking it's a real missing piece where i think a lot of european strategists are so obsessed with sort of focusing on following the sort of american push to the seas that they're kind of missing the fact that the contiguous territory that they have with china is you know the space from china is shrinking this area is becoming increasing chinese influence and mm-hmm. that is something they're not even trying to do with and i think because i think the the other point is that we look at this in terms people often compare and they say A question I've been asked a lot over the years as well, you know, look at what the Chinese do in Africa, Mm -hmm. you know, and how those relationships play. And surely that's just what's going to happen in Central Asia. And I think that misses the point, because to go back right to where we started, you know, this for China is about domestic Mm -hmm. stability and security in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different kind of relationship that they're going to sort of continue to manage going forwards. And the kind of interest that they're going to focus on there and what they're going to do and how they're going to advance it is linked to their direct domestic security, not in Africa, quite frankly, if a project goes wrong, shut up shop, move on to the next one. Let's just not do that again. You know what I mean? You can't do that in Central Asia because you're the neighbor. And so it's, you're just going back home and you're creating problems which are going to come and blow right back at you. So it's a very, very, very different relationship. And I think it's one that really, there should be a lot more thinking about the consequences of it. And you know, look, we've just been fighting a war in Afghanistan for 20 years. Afghanistan's the region that we're talking about here. Problems from this region do have a habit of reaching out and hitting us. So having a better sense of how we're, how we're managing equities and how the future and how stability is going to play out there is, I think, quite important.
1: Well, if you're a policymaker and you're listening to this podcast, I've got a book to plug you. <laughs> or, Raph, actually, you can plug your book. What is it? What is the full name?
2: The book is called Sinostan: China's Inadvertent Empire.
1: Well, there we go. Buy a
2: copy, buy your family copies, send it <laughs> to your friends, everyone. Christmas must be coming soon, you know.
1: <laughs> exactly. Raffaello Pancucci, thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thank
2: you so much for the invitation.
1: If you enjoy this podcast, we have a new Chinese Whispers newsletter coming soon. So if you want to sign up to that, which will just be an email version of everything you love about Chinese Whispers, the podcast, then you can go to spectator.co.uk forward slash whispers to sign up and it will be coming soon.